0: Hi there, you're listening to One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This podcast is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter, online at 107.com. We all have a story, don't we? We've all had successes and failures, joy and disappointment, love and sadness. And yet, we've all made it to here, to right now. Our stories are one amongst 8 billion others. 8 billion other stories, each of them unique, each of them grand in their own way, and each of them a window into the humanity that connects us all. One of 8 billion tells life stories from around the world. Let's listen. Our story today is about Jeremy Messersmith, a nationally acclaimed singer-songwriter based right here in Minneapolis. Jeremy's journey has taken a winding road from his start in tech support, to playing in coffee shops, to landing a record deal and becoming a successful recording artist let's listen
1: welcome to one of eight billion would you please introduce yourself well my name is jeremy messersmith i'm a singer songwriter i live in minneapolis minnesota and Right now, I'm just about to embark on a summer of playing in backyards all across Minnesota. That's my now. I'm literally looking at my guitar and some merch, and I will be hitting the road and touring in a very kind of stripped-down, COVID-friendly sort of way. How long will you be on tour? It'll be pretty much all summer, although as it's mostly Minnesota, I'll be working basically weekends till the fall, I think. That sounds exciting it sounds like something that like everybody should do everybody
0: should go on a tour
1: <laughs> it's like a road trip like with a point you don't you don't really need to have a point to go on a road trip they're all journeys of self discovery but but it's nice to oh i can actually like work and meet people and try out some songs and have a good home cooked meal every now and again
0: That's awesome. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. We're titled One of Eight Billion, and it brings up so many different feelings for me when I think of myself as one of this huge number of people on the planet. Sometimes I feel connected to everyone, sometimes totally insignificant and not connected. And I wonder how it makes you feel. What thoughts come to mind when you think of yourself as one of this huge population?
1: There are like waves of thoughts and feelings And the first thing is one of 8 billion. I don't feel very special or I'm just one of a bunch, but I find the meaninglessness (laughs) to be comforting as in, oh, I guess no one's really going to remember like any of us, like after we die and pass away, there's 8 billion of us right now. So I guess that kind of means that I suppose I'm free to do whatever I want. And that sounds really exciting. I don't worry about the burden of history or, changing the world. And to me, that kind of helps me focus on the here and now. Great point and perspective.
0: Yeah, there's something about the number that is liberating almost.
1: It's freeing in a way. I think of it sometimes hearing a really good band. Maybe Radiohead is one of my favorite bands. I'll just use them as an example. And sometimes I hear something that they do and I'm like, it's so good. It's Mm. just ridiculous. And then I just think, I guess that just frees me up to be myself, that I don't have to be Radiohead or be as good as Radiohead. I can just be me. And again, I find that kind of freeing in a way.
0: Where did life start for you? Where were you born? What did the beginning of Jeremy's life look like?
1: I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. At the Naval Hospital, my dad was in the Navy. was on a submarine somewhere in the North Atlantic when I was born. And we lived a few places. Maine is another spot. But most of my childhood, at least my first memories and things, all take place in eastern Washington, where where I grew up. And it's usually just memories of me, my siblings. I have, I'm the oldest of four. Yeah, I spent my first 20 years out there. And it's the kind of part of Washington State that no one really knows about. Like you think of Washington State, you think of oh, like Fraser and Seattle and that kind of stuff. But I grew up on the eastern side of it, which is the agricultural center. It's where Washington apples are from. Most of the hops used in beer in America are grown there. And it's a, it's very much a desert with some good irrigation. So similar to California and some parts of Oregon and stuff as well. And my... Hometowns of the Tri-Cities also has a unique distinction of being the most polluted place in North America.
0: Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You would think that like Los Angeles is the most polluted place, right? Well,
1: I guess it depends what kind of pollution you look at. But, but the towns didn't exist at all until World War II. And they were built in secret and in a hurry in the 1940s. Uh, as a place where the U.S. government was working on the Manhattan Project, and my hometown's out there where the plutonium was refined for the atomic bombs. Really? So out in the desert, there's a place called the Hanford Reservation, and it's just filled with kind of decaying reactors from World War II, which are currently being cocooned by government contractors. And it also contains a lot of nuclear waste from... Decades and decades of people just, let's just put it in a barrel and bury it in the desert and we'll see what happens. And uh, yeah, it's currently a government Superfund site. And it uh, was also the source of my first real job was driving around there and doing computer techie stuff out there around the year 2000 or so.
0: Wait a second, computer techie stuff, but you're a musician. <laughs> what, what kind of computer techie stuff? Do you tell.
1: Oh, sure. I've been a nerd for way longer than I've been a musician. And uh, <laughs> and I do find that there is a lot of overlap. Like Most of the musicians I know, it's frequently they're into tech, and at least these days, having your own studio and, and stuff is more about computer literacy than it probably even is about musicianship at this point. Mm-hmm. We're, in the, we're kind of in the era of computer jockeys as producers doing amazing work. But when I went to school, I got a computer science degree before I went to study music here in Minnesota, and, uh, and I took a year and worked. At the time, it was nothing particularly exciting, very entry-level help desk stuff, but I did get to drive around in the desert and see a bunch of radiation signs and warnings and ask if I needed a dosimeter. And uh, I was told that I really didn't. Who knows?
0: <laughs> that you probably already <laughs> exposed to enough and that it really didn't matter if you were counting it anyway.
1: <laughs> probably. <yeah. laughs> but, yeah. So when you were
0: growing up and you'd got this computer science degree through high school, is that the route you wanted to take? You wanted to be in computer science? Or how did you end up in college deciding that's what you were going to do?
1: I really had no clue what I wanted to do. And for the most part, I still don't. Music was something that I fell into. But I started college when I was really young and I just picked up an associate's degree and went another year and got a little computer science one. I'd been a nerd and I was like, but I think I just liked computers. Maybe this would be a thing to learn about. And turns out I wasn't exceptionally gifted at, at programming or, or anything like that. But, but I think at the time, computers were still a bit new and intimidating in a lot of workplaces. So I felt like just by growing up and having built my own PCs and stuff as a teenager, that it gave me a, a literacy that was helpful, at least in landing a job anyway.
0: So you were driving around Eastern Washington as the original Geek Squad, I guess, if you were a support.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's not too far off. Yeah, we would drive around to different kind of construction sites and tickets would come in. We'd go out and fix stuff or upgrade things or that was what we did. Every day you'd have to drive through the the armed checkpoint and stuff to get in and then work work on computers.
0: So cool. When I first started 10.7, we didn't just make websites. We did a little bit of tech support as well. And we supported the Electric Fetus, which is where my wife and I met. But they had, yeah, yeah, they had a an AS400 in their basement. Oh wow! I wonder if they still have it, and they use that for all of the warehouse CD inventory and orders. And I got a call to support that one time, and those were harrowing hours. And I'm (laughs) glad we don't do that anymore.
1: Yeah, there's nothing like spending some time on the phone answering tech calls to make you question everything you've done in your life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you make it back to Washington at all now, as a as still
1: a nerd but a musician, and visit the places you've been to back there? I'll occasionally drive through, but my family and most of my friends have like scattered and moved elsewhere. Other than visiting a, a childhood home or something, I don't visit very often.
0: So where was the change? How did you end up deciding? I'm not going to do this computer science stuff anymore. I'm not going to do the technology thing and support.
1: I am going to be a musician.
0: Was there ever that light that went off in your mind? How did that look?
1: I think that probably would have happened around the time I was driving around Hanford. I had a thought that there was maybe a much bigger world out there that I really hadn't seen very much of, and maybe to be who I wanted to be... I would need to leave, and uh, I didn't really have a huge compelling reason to go. I'd thought about studying film, maybe, and maybe going into that, but as I wasn't much of a visual artist, and I'd been playing guitar and doing music since I was a small kid in church and stuff, it felt like that was maybe a little more of a natural fit for me. But I think that's what drew me to, to leave and to Minnesota, was maybe not, oh, I need to become a musician or something like that. It was more just, I need to like leave my hometown and leave my family, and I need to see who I can be. I didn't have a like a picture of myself necessarily but I tried to be but I tried to be open. And you picked
0: Minneapolis as the <laughs> place you were going to move to. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> you, kind, you kind of know where this question is going because <laughs> I also picked Minneapolis although I didn't really have a choice about coming to Minneapolis. I picked America and Minneapolis was the place I ended up, but you uh-huh. picked Minneapolis. Why did you pick Minneapolis?
1: Thoughts of snow. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I think, like, I don't have a good answer. Looking back at it, I think subconsciously it felt like a thing I needed to do. And I think the joke that I tell people, because I get this question a lot, well, what brought you to Minnesota? What I typically tell people is, well, it was cold enough and just far away enough that no one from home ever really wanted to visit. (laughs) <laughs> and so therefore, it was perfect. If you want to become a new person, okay, it's time to it's time to sever from the past and do that. Which isn't entirely true. People have come to visit and whatever. But, but I felt like it was, uh, there was something exciting about going to a place where I knew literally no one. And uh, yeah. And I turns out I really like it here. And I've lived here ever since.
0: I really like it here too. And when I moved here, which was in 1999, I arrived on a day of the, it was the day before the Super Bowl. And I remember it being very snowy, and I'd never driven a car in the snow. And my boss, who picked me up at the airport, was like, "Don't worry, you'll be fine. Just go as fast as as everybody else is going around you. You'll be okay."
1: Oh, okay. All right.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's great advice. Let me try doing that. And so there is me driving down 35 to downtown Minneapolis to find a place where I'm going to be staying, and it was a little daunting.
1: That's and, a ba- uh, bapti- I was going to say a baptism by fire but more a baptism by snow I suppose. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> I read online that you moved around the same time. So I think it said 1999, yeah. and it said you were studying music. Mm-hmm. So you not only decided to change what you were doing and to become someone else, you decided mm-hmm. to continue studying. Mm-hmm. So you studied music, and then did you play bars? Did you decide you were going to make an album and made an album? Like, what was the first thing that happened that that made you think, "Oh, yeah, this music thing, I think it might work out."
1: That really didn't happen until much later I showed up to college I went to North Central University Which is in L.A. Park in Minneapolis And quickly found out that I didn't really have any kind of a classical music background And I could barely play guitar And I was woefully behind everyone else So I largely spent my first Kind of year and a half Just practicing guitar For hours and hours a day Studying and trying to understand music theory And all that as well I had a dream of, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna be like a, a rock and roller in like a cool rock band. I'm going to be like the lead guitarist with like mystique. And I quickly found out that I wasn't that great a guitar and I didn't really have a whole lot of, <laughs> in fact, like zero mystique actually. But I ended up stumbling across a songwriting class. I ended up auditing it, taught by this guy named Dave Peaty And I just had the thought where I was like, I don't know if I can do all the other stuff, but wow, I think I can do this. I think I can build a song. It's like making a movie, but it's like you're using music as well. And I think I have the tools to do this. And so I just started writing songs and I would write all sorts of silly things and sing them to my friends just to make people laugh and stuff. And there I started doing my first little demos and things, which pass around or I would burn them on my laptop, get the MP3s and I try to pass them around and stuff like that. But I really didn't start... Performing other than the occasional like cover band gig or something like that, which I did for a few years until, uh, until I graduated. And then uh, I just started playing coffee shops around. This is mm. probably around 2003 to 2004. And I would play any open mic I possibly could. I played at the Acadia Cafe a lot. I played at Dunn Brothers or at the Time, there was a place called oh. Betsy's Back Porch. I played there. Like any, I didn't say no to a gig for probably, I don't know, probably 10 years. Like, Anybody who wanted me to play, I would just play. And I never really had a sense at the time I was working in tech or working in coffee. I was working at like a coffee shop for a while as well. And I didn't really have much of a sense of something happening until, literally until I think City Pages wrote about, I had a release show for the Alcatraz Kid, my first album. And for the first time, people showed up to one of my shows. It was packed. Mm -hmm. I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, people are here. And I've always had people at shows since then. So I think maybe that would be the first moment where I was like, oh, this could be a thing. Maybe I could do this. This is exciting.
0: Thank you, City Pages. Boy, (laughs) do I miss that publication. Oh, I do too. Yeah. I think it was a few years ago. Maybe it was, I think it was before the pandemic. You released a... I want to say an album, but it wasn't an album. It was a songbook, I think. And you released it before you released the actual thing. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I remember you <laughs> writing. <laughs> you probably know what I'm talking about, but I want to try you... to be a little better about describing it. You released you wrote something, a song but book. it wasn't quite a th- you released. <laughs> I think you released a songbook, but you didn't release yourself playing any of the songs. Then you released the album which was you singing all the songs. In fact, I think I saw you perform some of these songs before Mm -hmm. the album was released. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because one of our values at 10.7 is be open. We're very interested in open source technology, Mm. in open sourcing, the work we do in contributing to the greater good and the greater community and the code that could be reused by others. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of that value when I think of this songbook that you released, because you basically said, Hey, here's all the music. Play it, use it, interpret it, change it, make it better or Mm. worse. And then I'll and then I'll tell you how it's supposed to sound when I release that <laughs> album. <laughs> That's probably not what you meant. But talk to me about that album and why
1: you were motivated to do that, and what was the whole story behind that. Oh wow, wow, that was a yeah, that was a really interesting time. I think it was way back in 2016, released in 2017, and I think it was mostly a reaction to grappling with the world in a Trump era, and. It just felt like there, like I had had an album recorded and I'd just given it to the record label that came out. I think in twenty eighteen, came out later as um, late stage capitalism, and it just felt like the moment Trump was elected, like everyone's like media frame and appetite had completely changed, mm. and I just went off to I went off to a cabin and I just started reflecting on my own life and values. And what I wanted to do was just write songs that kind of removed me there's a few different schools of thought that either your fingerprints should be all over the song or you should just get out of the way of it completely and just let the song be. And for this batch of tunes, I just got out of the way as best I could. And I tried to write just things that my my deeply held beliefs, my core values, and I just tried to write them as absolutely simply as I possibly could. And then I thought of the songs that were really important to me. And for the most part, they weren't the songs that I'd heard on the radio. They were the songs that I grew up singing. The ones that the passively listening to music is a great and wonderful thing. Moving your body to it is fantastic. Actually singing, performing, playing songs is just wonderful. And I don't know if there's any better way to encode information for people. I sometimes think about it like songs are basically... <laughs> computer programs for our analog meat brains, and they were our first. They were our first forms of information storage. Like you, you need something to be passed on, passed over generations. Write a song. That's how we have passed on knowledge for thousands of years. It's like our versions of data storage, like the melodies and things. They stick in our heads like nothing else. So I half-jokingly named the project 11 Obscenely Optimistic Songs for Ukulele, a Microfolk record for the 21st century and beyond.
0: Greatest name for a record oh, yeah. ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks. In an obscenely optimistic hope that, you know, yeah, maybe the songs will outlive me and get changed around as needed. And uh, yeah, it was a very interesting sell to the record label out in New York, It was very funny and I have very fond kind of memories of it where I just, I went out there to Glassnote Records and I went and visited their offices. They had no idea why I was there. And I just said, hi, I'd like to release an album. I gave them the title and they were like, okay, do you have the album? And I was like, no, I'm recording it on Tuesday. I'm recording it all in one (laughs) day with one microphone At a studio in Minneapolis, we're going to film it. And I don't want it to even be released as an album. It's a songbook. I want people to literally just sing these songs before they ever hear me do them. I don't want them to belong to me necessarily. And they were like, this is the craziest thing ever. And then uh, I put on my little pitch deck. And uh, then I sang through the whole album for them just right there. I just did all of it. And uh, and they loved it. And they were very supportive. Uh, And yeah, yeah, that's how that came about.
0: That's so cool. How do the sound engineers at Glassnote what do they do when you say I want to record this with one microphone?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I should say Glassnote doesn't really do and the record labels don't really do the creative stuff necessarily, so they don't really have engineers on staff for that kind of a thing. I think they immediately recognize the kind of folk punk vibe of the project and we're into it and we're supportive. But they didn't balk at that really at all. In fact, my producer, Andy Thompson, who ended up recording the album, he actually was really into the idea. And it was funny. When we would sit down, I would do a take and then I would be like, how did that sound? And he was like, oh, I think we need to adjust the levels a little bit. Your voice is a little too loud. And all he would do is just move the microphone down like an inch. Like that was that was how it was done. <laughs> that's amazing. We we really wanted it to be a "What You Hear Is What You Get" album, and you can literally hear like my voice getting more tired as the songs go on a little bit too. You can hear it getting a little scratchier as the day goes on.
0: It's a great uplifting album. That's a quick listen. That is catchy as well because there's that song about the cat. Yeah. Everybody gets a kitten, and there's a the wonderful Paul Wellstone inspired song title, We All Do Better When We All Do Better. Like, it's glorious to just listen to that.
1: Yeah. When I toured for it, I decided I wanted to go on a tour of just beautiful public places all over the U.S. Mm. And so I just mapped a route using mostly Atlas Obscura and a few other websites to find just cool, interesting, notable places where that were public, where people could just meet and... I would play kind of four or five shows in the most epic road trip ever. And people would come, people came out into nearly every single place that I went to come in and just sing with me. And it was really beautiful. But what I found singing the songs over four or five times a day, I would live stream them on Facebook and stuff, was that they really just became kind of a meditation. They were almost like a prayer. When you have like that amount of repetition with something, it's like your mind sort of empties. And I'd never really had that experience with at least my own music before. Thank you for creating that.
0: It's It was certainly something that I think the world needed in a really difficult time that was really necessary. I want to ask you about a memorable mentor or a leader or your support, the guy you reported to in, when you were doing support in Eastern Washington. Was there someone who sticks out in your mind over your lifetime that you think you learned from, or maybe taught you what not to do?
1: This is quite an easy one for me because this person looms so large in my life, but it's a singer-songwriter, Dan Wilson. When I was playing in coffee shops, I had a gig one time at the Acadia. This was maybe 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. I had been a big semi sonic fan. I learned to play guitar to closing time and Secret Smile and stuff off of Feeling Strangely Fine. So I was a huge fan. And he had been producing a band that I sat in with, sometimes called Epic Hero. And I remember he came out to a show that I did at the Acadia. And I was so nervous. I just couldn't believe that Dan Wilson is like here seeing me play my silly little songs. And the show went okay, it wasn't super fantastic. (laughs) By any means, I was not quite the uh, seasoned professional I like to think of myself as now. But I thought I had really tanked. And I remember going back to my studio apartment in Loring Park, and I had a very old answering machine there, like with tapes, like little cassette tapes. And I saw that the red light was flashing, and I went in and pressed play, and it, it was a message from Dan. Hey, Jeremy, this is Dan Wilson. I just caught you set of the Acadia. I thought it was really great. Hey, would you mind if we, like, maybe met up for beep? Oh, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the, the tape's full. I bought the cheapest tape, of course. Oh, no. What, what have I done? And <laughs> fortunately for me, he called back and he was like, hey, I'm not sure we got disconnected there. I'm not sure what happened. But anyway, if you want to meet for coffee sometime, <laughs> I'd love to chat. And That kind of was the beginning of really what has been a lifelong friendship and mentorship. He produced my second album, The Silver City we made it at his house and uh, it was really it was and continues to be a, a wonderful learning experience I, everything i know about music and songwriting about vocal performance and uh, recording methodology i've learned from dan as well as just how to live life as an artist and uh, he's he's well known now in kind of musical circles he's out in la now but he has like a big following of people that i think a lot of people would think of him as a mentor which is to his credit
0: that's so cool. What a great story. And for those that don't know who Dan Wilson is, this is the musician who comes from Minnesota and has worked with the likes of Adele, aside from being part of Semi Sonic and Trip Shakespeare as well. Did I get mm-hmm. that right? I think yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. What are you inspired by these days?
1: I think probably the same things as as anyone else. There's always like a new book or a film or some music that's that's inspiring. My biggest inspiration, or maybe my classic one that I've found, at least for creating things, if I need to be inspired, is probably boredom. Boredom is by far the greatest muse that I have ever known. And I, I suspect maybe the greatest muse that anyone ever knows. But if you remove everything exciting from your life, then you're then at least for me, my brain just starts constructing realities and starts, oh, here's a song idea, here's another one. When faced with lack of stimulation, that's just what happens. So usually if I need to feel inspired, then I just go to a cabin with no internet, my phone doesn't really work, and just sit there. And it's amazing how inspired you get in five minutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's some teenagers in my life that could be inspired in that way as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to change the mood just a little bit, yes, we will come back to levity. Mm. I would love to hear about what you think your greatest struggle in life has been.
1: Oh, the greatest struggle that's a great question. I'm trying to think if i have a if I have a good or at least compelling answer for that. there's no wrong answers here. I think the biggest struggle for me is probably just. <laughs> That's probably just been being an artist. And I still find it very difficult. Like, it's, I think of artists as functioning society's kidneys, but also (laughs) like we, oh, here's some crazy stuff. Let's process it and let's try to help contextualize or help people understand it or whatever. But it's also maybe the biggest tool for me, just me personally. I tend to think of it like, Uh, I have a certain set of tools. I imagine like my kind of artistic or songwriting scuba gear, so to speak. And and I put it on and I dive into my subconscious. And sometimes I bring up gems and it's fantastic. Other times there's kind of nothing. But I have found like the struggle to do that is is really difficult when there are so many things, so many other things to do. Mm. To do something that's real and genuine and good is really difficult and I still find that to be a struggle to this day. Like, where's my voice? What do I have to say about this? Should I have anything to say about it? And yeah, that continues to be a thing.
0: And the way you process it is the way that is the ends up being the product that we hear and that we see and that we listen to. And I'm thankful for that.
1: Good, I'm glad I'm glad someone is, yeah. <laughs> it's a very, oh yes, I'm, we're digging down, we're finding the pain in ourselves, we're expressing that, mm-hmm. and then maybe mm-hmm. we're saving other people a bit of time and thus society progresses. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I think in, there's different ways of looking at it. It's important to have that levity, but also the idea that this is actually heavy stuff in some cases, and it's important to do the work.
1: Yes. I do find that I'm a big fan of Richard Feynman. And one of the oh, things... love him! Oh, yeah. He's, he's great. One of the things he said is that if you can't explain something simply, then it probably means that it's not well understood. And I think of songs as that, and art as that as well. If If I'm having to wrap my ideas in a bunch of wit or humor, things that the ego puts into art and music, so people think that you're smart and funny, then perhaps I really haven't gotten to the heart of it yet. And Again, trying to find the genuine thing to say is difficult. Is there anything you're reading
0: or watching right now that you love, that you want to talk about? But I want to tweak that and ask, is there anything that you're reading or watching or
1: listening to that you love? I think the single biggest thing that has happened to me in the last six weeks has actually been a film although it does have a really wonderful soundtrack which is worth diving into as well but i I have seen this movie five times in the theater now and i think it might be my favorite film and i didn't think at my age that i could have a new favorite film of all time but this one's called everything everywhere all at once
0: i've seen that being advertised and i haven't really paid attention to it what is it about
1: It's a story of a woman who is perhaps not living up to her potential. And it's a silly, beautiful, funny, tear-jerking, emotional, multiversal roller coaster. It's really not like anything that I've ever seen before. I remember the first time watching it just thinking, I have no idea how this movie got made. I didn't know you could do this in a film. And seeing it with an audience, I've seen it with audiences a few times now, and it is, it's is—it's a magic trick watching it in a room full of people. It goes from people howling with laughter to just sobbing in the span of 10 minutes, sometimes even in the same scene. And to me, it feels like the first film of the 21st century. its I can't praise it enough. It's really just remarkable and, and really brave, beautiful filmmaking. The soundtrack is fantastic as well, and the thoughtfulness that they went into for having different music representing different universes and stuff is staggering. I don't necessarily want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen it, but uh, but when you have Sun Lux and Randy Newman collaborating on a soundtrack, it's just it's remarkable.
0: That is remarkable. I just pulled up the Wikipedia entry for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It also says Andre Three Thousand is. Is collaborating as a musician on oh, the soundtrack. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. This looks amazing. I am totally going to see this. Thank you for the recommendation. And how many? I, for a sec, I thought you were going to say Top Gun Maverick. Is that <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean,
1: I just wait till you see him shirtless playing volleyball. It's it's life changing. Oh Let me tell you. I don't need to see another movie after this. This that's it. We've peaked. i'm
0: glad you you didn't say that i've learned something about this i'm totally gonna go see this i will say i did see top gun maverick twice
1: just to circle back to what we were talking about the central question of being one person out of eight billion i feel like everything everywhere all at once that's part of the core of the movie is finding meaning in meaninglessness and um, and how to navigate that with skill and grace and and kindness and and beauty what a wonderful way to end
0: the podcast it's been so amazing talking to you jeremy thank you for agreeing to be on the show thank you for sharing your history your thoughts and your feelings about being one of eight billion thank you for all the music you've put in the world and the creativity that you exude it was just so great having you on Thank you for having me. I hope you'll join us in the next episode of One of Eight Billion when we'll hear from Zeblon Vilakazi, Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. Imagine this mm. galaxy is made of hundreds and billions of stars and there are billions of galaxies. And just a snapshot, that tiny, tiny keyhole, really, into the universe now you think of this planet being one of many in this solar system in this galaxy and this galaxy is one of billions of others and you're only one in 8 billion of individuals I mean doesn't it make you feel small in the entire cosmos this has been One of Eight Billion a podcast about all of us online at eight of8b.com. join us again next time as we listen to one of 8 billion other stories. One of 8 billion is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Find out more at 107.com. I'm Ivan Stegic. Thank you for listening.